I can't think of many places where peace is more desperately needed than places like Cuba. But as you've been listening to the news in recent weeks and months, where are some places in our world where peace is needed? Just call out a place, a name. Right here? German South Africa, Durban, Haiti, Manchester, the Middle East. And give me your definition for the word peace. When we say they need peace in Haiti, they need peace in South Africa, what do we mean? What is peace? Just call out a few words and let's build a definition here. What is peace? I mean, it's a word we use all the time. Stable government. Stable government. Lack of tension. Lack of chaos. Calm. The presence of the Lord. What was that? Comfort. Comfort. Love. Love. All right. I'm liking how this is where this is going. We we oftentimes probably first think of peace as the absence of conflict in a war zone or a riot corridor where we're looking for the absence of conflict. Can't we all just get along? And that is what peace means. But that's only the beginning of the meaning. And had I allowed you to go on from there, I think you probably would have preached my sermon. But I, I need to do this. This is my job. So to rein that in. I just want to, to give you a, a, a warning, a, a heads up, that over the course of the next 20 or 40 minutes or so, um, we'll expand that definition of what peace means. And perhaps it'll take on a meaning for you that you haven't thought of, haven't considered before. So I invite you to join me as we explore the greater depths of the fruit of the Spirit that we call peace. Let's begin in Galatians chapter 3, if you'll join me there. I want to read the first 14 verses of this letter that Paul wrote to the scattered churches in Galatia part of what is now Turkey. They called it Asia Minor back then, one of the Roman provinces called Galatia, with at least three churches that Paul had been instrumental in planting. Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. You foolish Galatians. I knows how to worm his way into people's hearts, doesn't he? You foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? 
So again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is, any, is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Paul, in the course of these few paragraphs, offers us three contrasting options, either this or that, this versus that. The first of them is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, versus the flesh. The Spirit versus the flesh. The question being asked here is, what is influencing our lives and our actions? Is it the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, or is it our sinful human nature? Do you ask that question? Lord, why am I doing what I'm doing? When the words come out of my mouth, when I, I do something to somebody else, what is motivating that? What's influencing it? Is it God's Holy Spirit at work in me, or is it my sinful, selfish human nature? Those are two stark contrasts, aren't they? It's one or the other. The second contrasting option that Paul offers us here in these paragraphs is faith and believing on the one hand or the works on the other. The question here is, in what are we trusting? Am I trusting in what I believe about Jesus Christ? Am I trusting in the faith that I have in Jesus or am I trusting in my works, my ability to obey the rules and regulations? Is it God's grace, or is it my effort? The third contrast is between Abraham and the law. And the question here is, how are we saved? Is it Abraham and the faith that he had, or is it the law? written by Moses. Now remember, there's a, a group of people here in the Galatian churches that are working to try to answer this question for people. 
they're called Judaizers. They're Jews who have become Christians, but are telling the Gentiles who are becoming Christians that before they, they can become Christians, they have to become Jewish. They have to obey the law. The Judaizers are proposing justification through the law of Moses. You have to obey all the rules and regulations and the commandments. But Paul says, no, that's not how we're saved. Instead, we're saved by grace through faith. We're saved by believing the same way that Abraham believed. If you're looking for an Old Testament precedent to follow, he says, don't look at Moses and the law. Instead, look at Abraham, who was called to leave his country, leave his family, go to a place that God would show him, and he would become a mighty nation, more numerous than the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. By faith... Abraham followed God. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, I, I have a fairly vivid imagination. I, I, can, I can understand and I can feel the challenge it is when somebody proposes something new to us, right? You go to a new classroom at the beginning of a new school year. You've got a new teacher, perhaps a, a new group of, of children, teenagers, fellow students in your college classroom. And it's a little bit difficult to adjust to that, isn't it? Because we got used to how last year's teacher or the, the teacher that you had for this subject did things. And you, you developed a, a core of friends there, supportive friends that helped you maybe in some things that you didn't understand and they understood better. And you got used to that. And we like, we like when there's less drama, right? We, we like when things are predictable. We prefer life to go on the way it's always gone on. And when somebody proposes something new to us, we find ourselves in a situation that we've never been in before, it's difficult, it's challenging. I understand that. What do they say, that the only one that really likes change is a baby in wet diapers? <laughs> but it's obvious as we read through this book of Galatians time and time again, it's obvious that the Judaizers were advocating for a one step forward and two steps back plan. Now, I, I don't mind so much the two steps forward and one step back. I mean, at least you're making progress, right? But one step forward and two steps back, that's just ridiculous. Who would choose a plan like that? But that's what the Judaizers were proposing. The one step forward was that they were, they were acknowledging that Jesus was the Messiah. That's a good thing, right? They were acknowledging that Jesus was the Messiah, but it was really only lip service. The two steps back are that they're reverting back to the law which on the one hand no longer produces righteousness, does it? Paul said that very plainly in chapter 3 here. Obeying the law no longer produces righteousness. This is not God's plan of salvation any long since Jesus showed up on the scene. That's one step backward. And the second step backward was that obeying the law results in being cursed. Show of hands, how many of you would like to be cursed? I didn't think so. <laughs> yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but 
You have to go back to the law. You have to obey all of the rules and the regulations, and, and that comes with a curse. Who thought this through? Whose plan was this? So Paul reminds the Galatians that by embracing the spirit, the faith, the Abraham model, the results are salvation from sin and the fruit of the spirit. So let's pick that up in Galatians chapter 5. I'll begin reading again from chapter 5, verse 16. So Paul says, walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk in the spirit, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you continue living according to the flesh, if you continue trying to obey the law as your means of being right with God, all you're going to end up doing is living that kind of a lifestyle, a lifestyle characterized by the works of the flesh. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, on the other hand, is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. The options that Paul offers in chapter 3 produce results of one kind or another in our lives and relationship. It's death, it's curse. But the, the works of the flesh, or the fruit, uh, excuse me, the works of the, the flesh or the fruit of the spirit are, are, are the two things that were, were being offered here. Two choices were being given. Paul, of course, recommends the fruit of the spirit. And specifically this morning, I want to talk about the fruit that we call peace. Peace comes to us in the Old Testament in the word shalom. One that we're probably fairly familiar with. It's the standard greeting to this day among people who speak Hebrew. Shalom in the Old Testament conveyed the image of wholeness, unity, and harmony, something that is complete and sound, secure. It referred to prosperity and health and fulfillment. Only a quarter of the time that it's used in the Old Testament does it mean the absence of conflict. And remember when I asked you for places that uh, 
that needed peace and what peace meant, that absence of conflict, the absence of tension, the absence of stress was one of those first definitions that we heard. But only a quarter of the time in the Old Testament does it merely mean the absence of conflict, people getting along somehow. The rest of the time, it expresses the fulfillment that comes to human beings when they experience God's presence. The fulfillment that comes to us when we experience God's presence. Have you ever had one of those experiences? You, you, you meet somebody and instantly you know they're a kindred spirit. They're the kind of a person that will listen to you. They'll really hear you. They'll be the kind of a person who will love you for who you are and be the kind of a friend that will help you to become a better person. You, you know that feeling that you have when you meet somebody like that? It's just, I can let down my guard. I can talk about things with this person that I would never be able to talk about with anybody else. Shalom. Most of the time it's used in the Old Testament as talking about the fulfillment that comes to us when we experience God's presence. And I suspect that that's the kind of feeling they're talking about. Imagine experiencing the loving presence of God. You don't have to imagine you've been there, right? <laughs> you know what this is, right? So the New Testament is written in the Greek language. They've got to find a word to translate shalom, this fulfillment that we fear and feel in the, in the presence of God. The Greek word irene is the Greek word for peace. And originally that word meant referring to that which was orderly or the prosperous life that's possible when there's no war going on. You kind of know what that's like, right? During the pandemic, all of a sudden, the price of lumber went skyrocketing. Groceries started creeping up. This, this, the cost of housing just went, you know, escalating off the charts. And we're hoping that groceries and gas and lumber and all of these things will go back to normal someday. But Irenae meant the prosperous life, the orderly things that were possible when there wasn't a war, when there wasn't a pandemic, when there wasn't a crisis. Which doesn't quite capture what shalom means, does it? It's more of the absence of conflict. So once again, the New Testament writers grabbed on to this Greek word irene and said, let's give it additional meaning. Just as they had taken the word agape and filled it with the chesed love of God. So they take the word irene and they add to it the Old Testament shalom. So it now means that God is the source and the bringer of peace. It's not the peace you have when people are getting along. It's the peace that you have when God comes into your life. 
It's the peace that's rooted in our right relationship with the creator of the universe and the master of everything. Peace isn't just a personal encounter or a personal experience. It has a corporate meaning. It's talking about people who are living in unity. It's talking about harmonious, fulfilling relationships with other people. Paul writes in Romans, make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. You know what the word edify means? It means to improve, to strengthen, to enlighten, to make somebody better. And it's coupled here with the word peace. Make every effort to do what's necessary to build up other people. In the community in which you live and worship, do things that make the weak strong. Do things that make the feeble, the feeble confident. Do things that improve the lives of other people. That's what peace is. William Barclay, one of uh, the great New Testament scholars of the 20th century, defined the word peace here in Galatians as God providing everything that makes for a person's highest good. God providing everything that makes for a person's highest good. What would you need God to provide so that you could be the best person possible? I'm not going to ask you to say anything out loud, but you know your struggles, your challenges, your faults, your weaknesses. What would God need to provide so that you would become the image of God in your family, in your workplace? What would you need God to provide for you to be the kind of a person that you have always hoped to be? I doubt any of us think, oh, I want to be a criminal. I want to be a reprobate. I want to be the most despicable person. No, no, no. We, don't, we, we want to be the best possible person we could be, right? I want to be the best husband I could possibly be, the best wife, the best child, the best parent. I want to be the best student. I want to be the best employee. You, you, this is the way most of us think. Please, show me a hand. Please, please. <laughs> so what would God have to do? What would God need to provide for that to become a reality? Because that's the definition of peace. God providing everything that makes for a person's highest good. Okay, so at this point in the sermon, I'm, th I'm thinking a few of you are probably saying, Pastor, back there in chapter 3, Paul was talking about faith and the Spirit and Abraham. And here in chapter 5, he's talking about peace. Aren't these two completely different things? I quite often share my sermon thoughts with Lynn on Wednesday or Thursday. It's always good to get a little bit feedback, and so I was walking her through what I had up to that point of the week, and all of a sudden I could see this cloud descend over her face. 
that's usually the cloud that comes when she's experienced sermonic whiplash. How did we get here? Uh, what's the connection? And she, she posed this illustration, and the kids' worksheets that she made uh, represent this. You know the, the connect the dots pictures? Yeah. She said, you're going to need to connect a few dots here, so, so stick with me. Chapter 3, faith. Chapter 5, peace. How do we get here from there? I would suggest that all that Paul is talking about in chapter 3 about Abraham and faith in the Holy Spirit is summed up by the word peace. Shalom, Irene. The righteousness produced by Abraham's faith in the transformational work of the Holy Spirit provides God's children with everything they need to live the holy, abundant, complete life that God intends us to live. Faith isn't just a ticket to heaven that you stick in your back pocket and then go on living your life the way you've always lived it, saying, I got my ticket. No, faith introduces us to a life which is going to be a lifelong progress in holiness, in fullness, in completeness, in Christ-likeness. That's what faith brings us into. And if you're going to grow up in Christ the way I've described it, that sounds like peace, doesn't it? God doing everything in your life that you need to be able to become the person that he created you, designed you to be. Faith opens the door to peace. Peace is the conclusion of the journey that begins with faith. One of the times that Jesus used the word peace takes place, it's recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 14, which tells you that it took place where? The upper room. John begins the upper room story in chapter 13 with Jesus washing feet. In chapter 14, he says something to the disciples. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Now, the upper room conversation, the Last Supper conversation took place. It's called last because it was just before he was arrested, put on trial, sentenced to death, died on a cross. So Jesus, who, who sees what's coming, Jesus, who knows what the next few hours are going to entail, says has the audacity to say, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. How would you have felt at that last supper if you knew you were going to die tomorrow? Oh, peaceful, Pastor. Yes, so peaceful. No, I'd be anxious. I'd be fearful. I'd be an awful lot of things, but peaceful is not one of them. But Jesus isn't using peaceful in the sense of the absence of conflict, right? He's not talking about a day tomorrow that's going to be all sunshine and roses, is he? He knows what's going to happen to him over the course of the next half day. And he still says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Jesus, in this sense, is, is using the, the word peace in the sense of representing the certainty that he had that God had brought him to this place. 
This was why Jesus was born. Jesus was not born to work a career and retire and get an RV and start going to lovely beaches and places where he could enjoy himself in his barco lounger. No, Jesus came into this world for this very reason, to die on a cross to set us free from sin. Jesus was fulfilling the purpose for which he was born, and that was called peace. And Jesus has the audacity to say, guess what, guys, here's my gift to you. You can have my peace. Because I know you are going to be in my same shoes in a few days, in a few weeks, in a few months, in a few years. In this world, you will have trouble with a capital T, which rhymes with P, stands for pool, right? Jesus says, I'm giving you my peace because you're going to be persecuted. You're going to have difficulty communicating this, this new gospel of grace and faith to people. They're not going to buy into this. They're going to still try to justify themselves. They're not going to like this because people just don't like God. It's built into our sinful human nature. And so they're going to persecute you to shut you up. But I give you my peace because just as God has prepared me, given me everything I need to be able to be the Savior that I need to be, so God will give you everything you need so that you can be my ambassador. You can be my representative. You can be the personification of Jesus Christ in your home, in your neighborhood, in your workplace. I give you my peace, Jesus says. And you say, Woohoo! <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Best gift I ever received. Another one of my favorite Greek scholars, Lawrence Richards, defines peace saying, our once shattered lives are again made whole. And we become in Christ what God originally intended us to be. Isn't that beautiful? Our once shattered lives are again made whole, complete, fulfilled, holy, perfect. Our once shattered lives are again made whole and we become in Christ what God originally intended us to be. God doesn't make trash, he recycles it. So, so far this has been largely a dictionary definition of what peace means, right? But we want to know what peace looks like lived in lives like ours. So I would give you Samuel. And this is where Lynn had that blank look. Talk about two steps back. Samuel? Really? Well, think about it for a moment. Samuel's mother, Hannah, one of two wives of a man named Elkanah, kind of like Jacob with Leah and Rachel, Elkanah loved Hannah more than he loved his other wife. 
But Hannah was barren, just like Rachel was barren. Jacob had two wives. Rachel was the barren one, although she was the loved one. So Elkanah loved Hannah. Hannah, because she was barren, prayed long and earnestly for a son. And after years and years of prayer, Samuel was born. And Hannah was so grateful that she dedicated Samuel to the Lord after he was weaned, meaning that she took him to live with the high priest Eli in the tabernacle for the rest of his life. Okay, help me, ladies. <laughs> help me. You're barren. You finally have a child. And after a year or two, when the child is weaned, you kick him out of the house to go live with Eli, the old priest at the tabernacle for the rest of his life. That's another sermon altogether, isn't it? But that's how grateful she was that God had answered her prayer. So she dedicated Samuel as a, a young child, an infant, to the Lord. Now, Samuel arrives as a young, young child at, at, at the tabernacle. Eli has a couple sons who are wicked. No other way of describing it. Eventually, a prophet comes to dad Eli and says that the sons are both going to die on the same day because of their disdain for the Lord, for their blasphemy. They're both going to die on the same day. Samuel is growing up, and every night he goes to sleep in the temple and, or the tabernacle, and one night while he's sleeping, he hears a voice saying, Samuel, and he assumes that it's Eli speaking to him. So he runs off to Eli. You called me? No, 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 I didn't call you. Go back to bed. Goes back to sleep. Here's this voice, Samuel. Wakes up, trots off to Eli. You called? No. Happens a third time. Eli's starting to get either a little ticked off or, or, or maybe the light is beginning to dawn over Mar Marblehead. But after the third time that, that, Eli, that uh, Samuel goes to, to ask him about calling him, he says, perhaps God is calling you. So here's what you do. Go lay down again, and if you hear the voice again, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So Samuel goes back to bed, hears the voice for a fourth time, and says, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Not a bad prayer, I might suggest. Try that out. Whenever you've got this little inkling that God is saying something, just say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. That's what Samuel said, and that's what Samuel did. And God confirmed to young Samuel that he was indeed going to kill Eli's two reprobate sons. So the next morning, Eli wakes up, and he runs into Samuel and said, So, was it God after all? Now you're a little boy. This is an old man, the high priest, the chief priest. You just found out that his two sons are going to die. You're going to confirm that, or you're going to try to get out of this gracefully. But Samuel, being the person that he is, says, well, okay, I've got to tell you the truth. God says your two sons are going to die. No way to sugarcoat that. And eventually that prophecy is fulfilled. 
Samuel goes on to lead Israel as if he were a judge. As a matter of fact, he's probably the final judge in that series of people like Gideon and Samson and Deborah who led Israel when the time was needful. He was the last in that line of Israel's leaders. Eventually, the Israelites asked Samuel, their leader, for a king. They're tired of having judges. They're tired of being on their own. They say, we want a king like all the surrounding nations. Samuel gets a little upset at this because he knows that they're rejecting God, and so he's, he's defending God, and God says, Samuel, don't, don't worry. It's not you they're rejecting. It's me, God says. So Samuel follows God's instructions and anoints Saul, the Benjamite, to become the first king of Israel. And it's not too long after he becomes king, of course, that the train goes off the rails with Saul. And so Samuel now has the unenviable position of needing to speak truth to power. Samuel is the one that time and time and time again goes up to confront Saul for his sinfulness. Eventually, he's put in another awkward situation. God says, I want you to show you who the next king, the second king of Israel is going to be. Go anoint the person that I show you. And goes to Jesse's house in Bethlehem and goes through all of his sons. And David, of course, the youngest is the one that's chosen. But now he's got to say, you know, Saul is still king, but now David has been anointed as his successor. Uh, you know, Saul is going to probably kill me for what I did, but... That doesn't deter Samuel. Samuel continues to be a man of integrity and holiness. Samuel, as a matter of fact, is one of the very, 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 very few characters in the story of God about whom nothing negative can be said. You know, pick your heroes from the Bible, and sooner or later, there's always something seamy that goes on, right? David, a man after God's own heart, and the whole Bathsheba thing. Doesn't matter who it is, virtually everyone, Abraham, Moses, all of them might have been heroes of faith, but at some point in their life, it goes off the rails. Except for Samuel, about whom nothing negative is recorded. Samuel was a man who became, by God's grace, all that God intended him to be, which is the working definition of peace. He served the Lord as prophet, priest, judge. He was a faithful and steady prophetic leader for the entire course of, of his life. He was a man overflowing with the peace of God. So let's go back to the beginning. I asked you for places in the world where God's peace is needed, and we named a bunch of places and situations. And yes, it means the absence of conflict, but as you are beginning to, to, to say, it also means infinitely more than that. If we want the kingdom of this world to become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, then peace is what we're striving for, right? Right? Peace is God providing everything we need, grace, faith, examples like Abraham, the Holy Spirit, to become the people he intends us to be and the ministry partners he had created us to be. So when you look at this connect the dots picture, initially it might not seem like much. 
But then when you start actually connecting the dots in the right order, you discover that what we're left with is peace. We've gone from Paul to Moses to Abraham to Jesus to Samuel, connecting the dots and discovering that peace is the thread woven throughout the entire story of God. The dots that are being connected are faith from Galatians chapter 3 and peace from Galatians chapter 5. It's talking about the relationship we have with God by grace through faith, which enables us to live in relationship both with God and with other people in a life that is fulfilling, complete, harmonious, powerfully winsome in every way. So peace is the fruit of Abraham believing. Peace is the fruit of Moses obeying, of Hannah consecrating, of Samuel listening, of Jesus dying, and of Paul being crucified with Christ, and of the Holy Spirit filling us with God's self. Listen to this, these verses from the end of that reading in Galatians 5. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in, spirit, in step with the Spirit. We're going to share communion together in a moment. And I, I want us to have this verse in our minds. Those who belong to Jesus Christ, those who belong to Christ Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep up with the Spirit. Let us keep in step with the Spirit.